series uh, through the Gospel of Luke uh, for one of the Old Testament prophecies about Christ, our Savior, born in Bethlehem. We're reading Isaiah today, Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 9. You can find that on page 575 in our ESVs, if you picked one up. Page 575, Isaiah chapter 11, today reading verses 1 through 9. Before we read God's word, please join me in prayer. O glorious Lord of all, we thank you for your word which proclaims to us your salvation, which calls us to rejoice and worship you. We pray that you would work by your spirit in our hearts. Take this living word and work it into hearts which are dead in sin and yet which you have renewed and cause us to breathe in the life of your spirit and to rejoice in obedience to you that we should be your people and much more that we should rejoice in the obedience of our Savior who came to raise us up and cause us to sit with you. We pray, O Lord, for the sake of Christ's name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Isaiah chapter 11, reading verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Every year... Uh, The routine is basically the same. My wife takes care of the majority of the Christmas cards that go out from our house, and she might pick one of those uh, picture cards with our children on the front. That way all of our our family can see how they've grown, and that's fun, and that's nice. But but there are always a few cards that I have to get by myself. And so I go to CVS, and I stand there in front of that wide wall of red and green, and glitter, and I look, and it takes a while, 
Every year it seems to take longer than I expect, even though I remember doing it the year before, and it took a long time that time as well. And as I stand there looking and searching for something that I cannot seem to find, uh, if I'm not careful, I can get frustrated and I can get curmudgeonly because I can't find the card that I'm looking for. I know that sounds a little bit dramatic, but trust me, it, it is. Uh, <laughs> You need to understand that, that my taste and, and my, uh, my, uh, my taste in Christmas cards, really, my standards are pretty low. I'm not all that picky when it comes to finding the right Christmas card. In fact, I judge the value of a Christmas card by one single criteria. And that criteria is, does this Christmas card have anything at all to do with the incarnation of Jesus Christ? That's all I'm looking for. And yet, Christmas cards, ironically, that feature Christ are increasingly difficult to find. You can find lots of cards with those saccharine sweet messages. Messages like this one. I, I promise I wish I had made this up, but I didn't. I found a card this year that says, At Christmas, we look at life around us through a slightly different lens. We see more clearly how we are blessed by giving and receiving and we know deep down what matters most is family and friends. So sweet, it makes your teeth hurt. <laughs> or there's this one that, that started out promising. The front of the card uh, simply had the word peace, and it was, uh, it was emblazoned, it was embossed in silver letters in the center of an iridescent wreath. But then when you opened the card, this is the message inside, in the midst of all the hustle and bustle of the season, here's hoping you have some time to relax, to renew your spirits, and to enjoy just being with the ones that you love. Now, folks, I'm not naive. I don't expect to walk into Walgreens and find a row of cards quoting the catechism. But here's what's distressing to me in this whole mess. What's distressing to me is that this is an indication that most likely there is some executive and his team in the upper echelons of the Hallmark Company, and they are armed with, uh, with market research, and they're making decisions about the Christmas cards that they're going to make this year. And they're deciding which ones will have these uh, sweet, fluffy messages about family togetherness and what percentage of the cards that they'll print this year will have those inappropriate jokes about workplace drunkenness and, and which cards will have something to do with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And their decisions are based on what they think you will buy. And so what disturbs me is not really the cards themselves, but what the cards reveal about us and about our culture. What we think is actually important, what it reveals about what we're willing to slap a stamp on and send to dear Aunt Martha in Toledo, that's what disturbs me. And the way that it reveals not just how little we think of Jesus, but how little we think of the human condition. Could you imagine sending one of these cards to Mary and Joseph? You know, when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be registered, and dear Mary and Joseph, I know that now probably isn't the right time to be traveling, but I want you to know that while you are displaced by the hand of foreign oppression, I hope you get to enjoy just being with the ones that you love. That's what matters. 
Could you imagine? Could you imagine sending one of these cards to the prophet Isaiah? Dear Isaiah, I know that the nation is drowning in idolatry. I know that you're preaching a message that no one wants to listen to. I know that the Lord has sent the Assyrian army against his people in judgment of their sin. And even now, as you look out beyond Jerusalem, you can probably see the smoke of distant cities as they're being burned to the ground, and the Assyrians are cutting their way through the nations on their way to your doorstep. But I want you to know. I hope that you and King Ahaz at least get some time to renew your spirits to recognize how blessed we are by giving and receiving. Now that's a little far-fetched. Perhaps, uh, more realistically, dear Aunt Martha, I know this is the first Christmas that you've had since Uncle Herb died in June. I know that your heart is broken. I know that every night you still cry yourself to sleep and nobody can understand why you're still so sad. But this Christmas, I hope you get to relax. I hope you get a little bit of me time in between your goings and your doings because that's where peace is found. Can you imagine anything more callous? Can you imagine anything more out of touch or more hurtful than sending that kind of message to someone who knows what suffering and pain is all about at Christmas time? You see, the problem with cards like this isn't just that they ignore Jesus, but that they might make a mockery of why Jesus came in the first place. That's why Isaiah is so helpful this morning. Isaiah gives us God's perfect Christmas message for us. A message of hope in the midst of real suffering. A message of joy and peace. Real, true peace in the person of Jesus Christ. This message proclaims to us the peace of Christ, not just because he's the Savior who happened to show up, but because he's the Savior that we actually need. Now let me suggest, as we begin to look through this prophecy of Isaiah, that we will see four things that we need to know about this Savior. Four things that Isaiah would have us know about how much we need him. The first thing that we see about our Savior is that He is the Deliverer who springs from destruction. That's our first point, that He is the one who springs from destruction. A little bit of context is helpful. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles open, look at the last two verses of chapter 10, uh, verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low, and he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one, and then the stump and the shoot. You see, the Lord is proclaiming judgment. That judgment comes in the picture of a woodsman who has his axe sharpened and is already laid at the root of the tree. And he's lopping down the boughs, and nothing can stand before the blow of his axe. Now, specifically in the end of chapter 10, this judgment has to do with Assyria. Assyria was that bloodthirsty nation. It was breathing down Jerusalem's neck during uh, the time of Isaiah and his ministry. It was a sleeping dragon, actually, that had been awoken, uh, or awakened, however you want to say that. Uh, it had been awoken by uh, King Ahaz. 
because Ahaz was being threatened by the northern kingdom of Israel and their ally, Syria. And so Ahaz went to find his own ally, and he leaned on Assyria and what they could provide for him and safety that they could give to him. And he aligned himself with them, and he worshipped their gods, and he engaged in more and more idolatry, trusting in Assyria rather than in the Lord. And then Assyria, during the reign of Ahaz's son Hezekiah, turned their sights on Judah. And you recall that passage in Scripture. You find it uh, in the Kings, and you find it in Isaiah, where 185,000 Assyrian troops surround Jerusalem. And they lay siege to it, and the people are thirsting and hungry and wasting away inside of the city. But before all of that ever happens, Isaiah is envisioning a time when Assyria herself will be chopped down and burned. And the Lord is proclaiming judgment. But it's really a, 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 an echo of judgment that the Lord has already proclaimed against his people Israel. It happens back in chapter 6. So turn back a few pages. Isaiah chapter 6. You remember, uh, this is Isaiah's vision. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple, and even the prophet is undone by the sinfulness of his lips. And the Lord commissions Isaiah to be his man, to go to the people, to speak an unpopular message that will harden hearts and blind eyes so that his idolatrous people will be left incapable of hearing and turning and being healed. And Isaiah cries out, how long, O Lord? How long? And what is the answer? Beginning in verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord said, until cities lay waste without inhabitant." and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You see, the Lord has proclaimed judgment and devastation. Proclaimed judgment on his idolatrous people. He has proclaimed judgment on the arrogant nations. Judgment against anyone who raises their heart or their hand or their voice against the Lord God Almighty. And God says, I will come and I will chop down the boughs and lay low the thicket of the forest. And none of the strength or the glory of man is able to stand when the Lord comes in judgment. Because the Lord is bringing destruction. And the nation will look like those uh, mountains after a tornado has been through and it's stripped bare. The people will look like those scenes of, of Brazilian rainforest being clear-cut and there's nothing but stumps left. That's the desolation of the human condition. And yet in the midst of that destruction, the Lord says that he has promised a deliverer. And quite frankly, he's not much. At least not at the beginning. He's just a shoot. Just a small green twig growing up out of the lifeless stump of Jesse's family line. Oh, that line that had, had so much earthly potential. Jesse's line, David's line, the line of kings and a promise for kingship through all generations. And yet you can read the kings and you can read the chronicles and you hear that phrase repeated over and over and over again. He did not walk in the ways of David his father. And you don't have to read the last chapter to know exactly where that story is going. It's headed for idolatry. 
It's headed for judgment, and it is headed for destruction. But the Lord says he will raise up his own king. He's going to go back a ways. He's, he's going to go back before pomp and circumstance and splendor muddied the streams of the kingship in Judah. He's going to go back to the time, even before David, when Jesse and his family lived in obscurity in Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And God's king will be the one who comes after David, and yet he's somehow before David. And he'll be the one who comes in obscurity. He'll be humble and unassuming. He'll grow up as a root out of dry ground, as one who has no form or loveliness or splendor that we should desire him. He'll be the one who is born in obscurity, the son of a peasant girl laid in a manger and welcomed by shepherds. He'll be the one who's overlooked and rejected and despised of men. And yet he is the one who bears the fruit the Father desires. What does it say? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And he's the one whose kingdom will grow. It will begin small. In Isaiah, it's a shoot. In the parables, it's a mustard seed. And it grows into the tallest of trees, and it stretches its branches, and it gathers the birds of the heaven and provides resting place, and he provides bounty for his people from the bounty of his own righteousness. And the Lord provides a deliverer who springs from destruction. Even though we're cut down in the midst of our days, even though we deserve the judgment and the destruction that is coming for our iniquity, the Lord provides for himself the Lord provides for his people exactly the Savior we need. Fruit in the middle of faithlessness, life amongst the ashes of death, and deliverance in the midst of destruction. This is the Savior the Lord has given for his people. Secondly, he is the Savior who delights in obedience. He's a Savior who springs from destruction. He is a Savior who delights in obedience. Now, this idea that we find in verse 2, uh, that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that ought to be familiar for those of you who have been with us and you've been walking with us through Luke's gospel because we've seen over and over and over again in recent weeks the way the Holy Spirit comes to anoint and to empower Jesus Christ for earthly ministry. In fact, that's the way that, that Peter... In Acts chapter 10, verses 36 and 37, he's, he's meeting with a bunch of Gentiles in Cornelius' house, and he summarizes what was Jesus' ministry all about. Well, he says, you remember what happened in the beginning at John's baptism, how the Holy Spirit anointed him, and Jesus went throughout the land, all of Galilee and all Judea, and he, and he healed and he helped and he drove out the devil because the Lord was with him. Everything he did for three years could be summarized by that one idea that the Spirit rested upon him. For three years, Jesus walked and taught and helped and healed, and it was all a demonstration that he was the anointed one, that the Spirit of God rested upon him. It's the same idea that we find here. And yet, Isaiah takes it a little bit further. He begins to enumerate what spirit this is. How will we know? What will it look like when the spirit works on the one the Lord has sent? He's, he, a past generation would say he's talking about the perfections of the spirit. We don't talk that way anymore. But he gives us three perfections, three pairs almost. 
He says the Spirit will come upon him, uh, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. This is an intellectual perfection. It doesn't mean necessarily that Jesus in his human mind was automatically, instantaneously endowed with an exhaustive understanding of theoretical calculus. That's not the kind of wisdom and understanding that we're talking about here. This is, this is talking about discernment. This is talking about perception. And you can think back to every single wrong decision you've ever made because you had incomplete information. Every time you said or you did some boneheaded thing because you didn't know what you were talking about and it made you feel like a fool, that's never happened for Jesus. Because by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, he never misread a situation. He never heard someone talking to him and then turned around and imported his own sinful assumptions about what they actually meant when they didn't mean it at all. He has never failed to take account of, of some very important piece of the puzzle and then later said, oh, man, I can't believe I missed that. No, it's the spirit of, of wisdom. He's the spirit of wisdom and an understanding who rests upon Christ the Savior. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the spiritual man discerns all things. Well, that's perfectly true of Jesus. The spirit of wisdom and understanding rest upon him. And then the spirit of counsel and might. You might call this a, an administrative perfection, almost. This is language, the, the spirit of counsel and might. This is language that describes someone who's not only able to choose the best way forward, to, to, to line out the plan that will, will come to the best end, but he's actually able to make sure that it happens. We can think back to uh, a past generation and, and uh, generals and, and leaders of militaries sitting around in their room with their massive maps and they've got those long sticks and they're moving those troops and, and all of those pieces trying to figure out what will the enemy do, how will they attack, where will they come from, and how do we counter in all of these different situations. And even there it looks kind of tidy in the war room. But when you get onto the field and the, and the enemy does something that you don't expect, well then it all goes to pot. Well, not for our king, not for our savior. He has the spirit of counsel and might. It's familiar language, isn't it? It reminds us of another prophecy that we tend to read around Christmas time that happens just two chapters earlier in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 5, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Because the Spirit rests upon him, the Spirit of counsel and might. And because of that, Spirit Jesus is the Savior against whom no devilish forces can stand. He marches forth against sin and death and hell, and he always returns triumphant. And then Isaiah speaks of the Spirit of knowledge. And the fear of the Lord, this is a moral perfection. This isn't just a, a general knowledge, almost like we see in, in, 
in that first line, wisdom and understanding. This is a spiritual knowledge. If you've got the NIV in front of you, it's actually really helpful on this line. The NIV translates this, uh, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Both of these things are connected to the Lord. Both of them have something to do with God. He, he knows the Lord and he fears the Lord. Now, what is it in Scripture to know someone? Very often, it's a marital term. Husbands and wives know one another. They understand one another. They share themselves with one another. They, uh, they are together. They participate together in life and in joy and in sorrow. And to know someone in biblical terms means that you have a deep and an abiding intimacy with that person. Isaiah doesn't have any, any overtones or, or connotations of a physical intimacy here, but he is talking about a deep relationship between the Son and the Father. They are together of one mind, of one will, of one purpose. It's a, it's a statement of relationship, and it's also a statement of responsibility. This is a spirit of the fear of the Lord. The Son comes into the world, and He knows exactly what He ought to do, and He is full of humility, and He is full of obedience, and He is the one who, who His every desire is to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with His God. And so there is a a moral perfection, an administrative perfection, and a, an intellectual perfection. But the summary really comes in the beginning of verse 3, which ought to be connected with verse 2. In verse 2, four times Isaiah has mentioned the spirit of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. It means spirit or breath or wind, some sort of movement of air. They said it three times. It's this idea that the Lord is breathing out His Spirit upon the Savior to equip Him for this obedience and for His ministry. But then in verse 3, it says, His delight, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now that word there, delight, actually is a pretty rare form. It sounds an awful lot like ruach, the word for spirit, and it actually means to to breathe in a pleasant aroma. You know what it is to go into somebody else's house at Christmas time. And the scent of pine and gingerbread and mulled cider is all mingled together and it meets you at the door and you can stand there and close your eyes and just breathe it in for hours. That's the picture here. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. The Lord is breathing out His Spirit and Christ is breathing it in. He's delighting in, in reverence. He's delighting in humility and obedience. He is the one who comes and delights to do everything the Father has sent him to do, to gain back and to win redemption for all the elect, no matter what it costs. And so the Lord sends him to a manger. The Lord sends him to obscurity. The Lord sends him to the thorns and to the whips and to the cross. And Christ breathes it in, and he says, this is better than Christmas dinner. This is what I've come for. This is what I delight in. He's a Savior who delights in obedience. That's who we need. He's also the Savior who rules in righteousness. He's a Savior who rules in righteousness. Now, this will take us uh, to the end of verse 5. And, and this portion is a reminder that Jesus didn't come into the world just to be our prophet, though that's important. 
He didn't come just to be our priest, though we rejoice in his intercessory work and his atoning sacrifice. He also came into the world to be our king. Not just our king, but the king over all creation. Whether men want to have him as their king or not, he is the king. And you see that because it speaks in terms of his judgment. Now, you know that in the ancient world, uh, the role of king and judge often overlapped. And so you can recall some of those uh, passages in the scripture where you see the widow, where you see the disenfranchised, you see the poor and the oppressed coming before the king and pleading their case and saying, please, king, give me justice. And the idea was that the king had the power and he had the wisdom and he had the ability to be an impartial and a righteous judge and to render a verdict and to vindicate those who were being wronged. That's what a king did in the ancient world, but we know how it works in the real world, don't we? But those who have power and influence can buy the favor of the king. And if you are devoid of resources, you are just ground to powder by the wheels of oppression and bribery. Well, not so with our king. Look at verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. Uh, yes, there, there are folks who want to remind us, of course, uh, that, that this actually is a spiritual thing. That when Isaiah says poor, he's talking about those who are poor in spirit, who understand the poverty of their iniquity, the fact that they cannot save themselves. And so we hear this voice uh, on one side, and then on the other side we hear another voice saying, actually, quite often there is a material component to this as well, don't forget. And don't forget James chapter 2. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And, and James there unequivocally is talking about the materially poor. And isn't it often the case that the gospel is embraced by the meek and the lowly and the poor of the world and oppression and persecution comes from those who are rich and those who are powerful? And yes, so we've got these two voices and there's an element of truth in both of them and we need to hold them in tension as we read what Isaiah is saying about judging the poor. But the point of this verse is that whether we are talking about spiritual goods or physical goods, the point is that our King Jesus is not the kind of ruler who can be swayed by the things that influence the hearts and the eyes of man. Our King is not impressed by your bank account. He is not impressed by your personal connections. He is not impressed by the office you hold in his church. His understanding of you and your sin or your righteousness cannot be clouded by how much you put into the offering plate. It cannot be clouded by how many times you have faithlessly prayed the Our Father or the Hail Mary or even the sinner's prayer. One translation paraphrases verse 3. It says, He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. What does that mean? That means that Jesus' justice can never be perverted. His verdict will never be false. He sees with absolute clarity the hidden agendas and the desires of every human heart. He judges the world with justice and with equity and truth and righteousness. And this, folks, is the Savior that we need. 
But truth be told, he is not the savior that most people want. Would you rather stand before a judge who can be schmoozed, who can be bought, or would you rather stand before a judge who knows with absolute laser accuracy your guilt or your innocence before you ever open your mouth in your own defense? I think this is the reason, one of the reasons, that even at Christmas, Jesus is marginalized. He is ignored. Because if we listen and we believe the word of Scripture about the Christ who came in the humility of the manger, we must believe and listen to the one who is coming again in glory and righteousness and judgment, and that is a far different picture. We find it in Revelation. Revelation verse 19, sorry, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. John writes, I saw the heavens opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is a far different picture than what we see in Luke chapter 2. The baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger and greeted by the shepherds. But if you read Isaiah chapter 11 and then you read Revelation 19, you have to say this is the same person. This is the same branch. This is the same shoot who sprouted up from the line of Jesse. This is the same Savior who came into the world because this is the Savior that we need. He's the one who girds his loins with faithfulness and who strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth. He's the king who rules in righteousness. Now there's one more point here. It has to do with beasts, and it has to do with babies. Uh, and it is the point that, uh, that Jesus is the Savior who transforms creation. He's the Savior who transforms creation. There, I tried. I, I couldn't come up with any better word than transformation. Uh, that really is the best picture for what's happening here. In, in verses 6 through 9, Isaiah is envisioning what the reign of this righteous branch will look like when it comes in its fullness. And he gives us that classic picture of the lion and the lamb and the wolf and the sheep and the leopard and the fattened calf lying peacefully side by side. And these images are serene and they're poetic and they are completely unnatural. This past July, at the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, a three-year-old jaguar named Valerio escaped from his enclosure. Perhaps you read uh, those news stories, and once he got out, Valerio went on a killing spree. In a matter of hours, he killed uh, six alpacas, three foxes, and one emu. Now, uh, the veterinarians were able to sedate Valerio, to capture him, and to get him back to safety without any further harm to himself or other animals. But later, when the zoo officials were questioned as to why the jaguar hadn't simply been euthanized, they explained that the jaguar didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, he escaped, but when he got out, he did what jaguars do. They're killing machines. It's their nature. 
Of course he's going to kill the alpacas. Nobody's surprised. And yet Isaiah portrays a wolf and a leopard and a lion and a bear, and each one, I think, one more step, each one's a little bit more ferocious than the previous. And he shows them acting completely contrary to their nature. It's unnatural. They're as tame as rabbits. They're eating straw like livestock. And he's showing us something. He's showing us that when the kingdom of Christ comes in full flower, there will be no hostility. No violence. No hatred. No strife. No war. Because it will be transformed. Even the violence that we've come to ignore, the violence we've come to expect and take for granted, even that will be done away with. Even the animals will live in harmony with one another. The animals live in harmony with man in a way that they have not lived in harmony with man since the days of the paradise in the garden. Even that original enmity, the one that got everything out spinning, that enmity between the children of man and the seed of the serpent, even that will be done away with. And the nursing child will put his hand on the cobra's den. Not because the fangs are broken, but because creation will be transformed. Now this is hard for us to imagine. It's so hard for us to imagine that a a whole uh, generation or several generations of pastors in a bygone era uh, tended to look at this primarily allegorically. To say that what we've got here in these pictures of the animals really is a spiritual picture. You know, there is this peace that dwells in the hearts of men and that changes them when the gospel takes hold of them. And, and there's some truth to that. There, there is an idea that some men, some women even, are, are like ravenous wolves. Saul of Tarsus, seeking to devour and to kill the kingdom of God and to strike down the lambs of God wherever he could. And yet the gospel takes hold and Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. And the lion is made to eat straw like an ox and to lay down and to tend the lambs and the sheep. This is true. Christ's reign is able to make a dramatic change in the lives of those who were once enemies of him and his church. And the hidden, the inward work of Christ is able to tame the violence of humanity that no medication and no therapy and no physician could ever hope to treat. But I think if we leave it there, we sell the scriptures short. Because Isaiah isn't giving us an allegory that we are supposed to decipher. He's giving us a reality that we're supposed to sit back and wonder at. Something that we're supposed to see. He's showing us what things will actually be like. Think about what he's told us already in the passage as we've seen it. That the reign of the Prince of Peace begins small. It's obscure. It's humble. It's a shoot out of a stump. It's a baby in a manger. But that shoot, our Savior, is anointed by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Spirit for a life of obedience and suffering and sacrifice to the Father. And because of his perfect obedience, because of his perfect sacrifice, he has won the right to judge the nations in righteousness. That's happening even now, even today. 
His word is going forth. The rod of his mouth is striking the nations and it is dividing between the humble and the proud, between the the elect and the reprobate, between those who are his and those who shake their fist at him. It's happening now, but it will happen completely one day when he returns in glory and fearful vengeance. When he treads out the, the winepress of the wrath of God, it will happen one day. And then will come that glorious day. That day when every sad thing will come untrue. And hatred and strife and fear will be banished. And the new heavens and the new earth will be filled with the knowledge of God to overflowing. See, I think these gentle beasts are a promise to us. That if this is what it will be like for them, for the ignorant beasts who don't understand and don't know what's, what's happening, if there's peace and contentment, when in God's renewed creation every need is met and every violence is subdued, if that is true for them, how much more for us? Who know the Savior who was sent, who trust in Him, who are looking forward to the day of His appearing when we will see Him as He is and we will be transformed to be made like Him. How much more for us? I think the animals are a promise. It's a picture meant to make us wonder. Meant to make us anticipate. It's meant to make us rejoice. Because the baby who came in the manger is the Lord who will transform creation. And so too will he transform his people. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the Savior we need. Won't you join me in prayer? O Lord our God, we thank you for the truth of your word that not a single promise of yours will fall to the earth void, but they will accomplish exactly what you have sent them for. Thank you for your eternal word, Christ Jesus our Lord, who will not be sacrificed in vain, but will accomplish exactly what you have sent him to do, the transformation of your people, to lay low the sin and violence of our human condition to meet us in our suffering, to draw our eyes to faith in you, to give us the comfort of your spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that you would work your spirit into us and so transform us. Make us fit to see you and to be with you and to rejoice in you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he speaks of the table of the Lord and he